2: We're all feeling the novelty and the occasional trepidation of re-emerging into the world after our extended social hibernation. But we're not the only organisms returning after a prolonged absence. Imagine if you were wriggling back to life after 24,000 years buried in frozen soil.
3: Lo and behold, they saw small soft-bodied organisms
2: starting to metabolize and grow. We might relate to organisms that are returning to vitality after years, sometimes tens of thousands of years of dormancy. So in this episode, we have examples of some that have spent time underground. Some burrowed out of sight while others were trapped in permafrost. What accounts for their astonishing capability to reemerge? And what does that suggest about the limits of suspended animation for more complex biology? I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. And in this episode, we meet or re-meet organisms that have been laying low in one way or another since they were last seen in the years 2004, 1879, and 22,000 B.C., respectively. What brought them back, and how are they faring? This is Cicadas and Zombie Seeds.
2: The cicada is driven to venture out of its underground lair for one reason and one reason only, the prospect of a hookup. For the old-fashioned, that's a love connection.
4: Fancying themselves as the Bing Crosby-style crooners of the insect world, the males emerge and in their final weeks before they die, begin frantically belting out songs competing with other males to win over and mate with females.
2: Cicadas are interested in cicadas when they emerge, but their 17-year cycle of sex and death has aroused some human interest as well.
5: My name is Chris Simon, and I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut.
4: Dr. Simon joins a long-running scientific enterprise of mapping the locations where billions of cicadas show up on the East Coast. The first recorded sighting of one of the 15 numbered broods of cicadas, called Brood 10, this is a 17-year cycle brood, seems to have been in Philadelphia back when it was part of the colonies. Scientists have been keeping an eye on the charismatic red-eyed creatures ever since.
2: Cicadas exhibit clearly odd behavior. We don't know exactly what they're doing underground, but we do know that they stay in place. We also know that when cicadas become adults, they emerge to mate. The eggs are then laid in trees. When those hatch, the offspring, called nymphs, drop to the ground. They then disappear for anywhere from 3 to 17 years.
4: When brood 10 appeared this year, it was spectacular. The prodigious number of insects encumbered tree branches and even clogged the engines of President Biden's press plane, temporarily grounding it. One lucky cicada met the commander-in-chief himself.
5: There was a picture of Biden boarding Air Force One with a cicada on his neck, and that's not the first magic cicada that's tried to get onto Air Force One. I also have a photograph of George Bush with a cicada following him into Air Force One.
2: No security clearance needed for these insects, despite the fact that they were clearly bugging the president. While cluttering our trees and mailboxes, these enormous insects also fill the air with their love songs, which they create with membranes in their abdomens called timbals. The three species of cicadas each have their own jam.
5: And so, one of the most common on the East Coast is the really mellow sound, and it sounds like a low whistle. And then it's got this drop-off note at the end, so it's like and when they're, all singing together, to me, it sounds like flying saucers from a 1950s science fiction film. <laughs> the other two species are smaller and they have harsher sounds. And so Magiscata cassini is the one that's black underneath. And it's one that has a series of ticks and they get faster and faster. And in the end, there's kind of a little scream at the end. It goes like tick, 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 The third species is also a small one. It looks like a miniature version of the large one, and it's called Magiscata septendacula. And it's more of a, a pulsing, chirping noise, and it never occurs by itself. And so often, if all three species are singing together, it's hard to pick it out. But if you concentrate, it sounds like a tiny little tambourine just going like that in the background.
2: Now, while the cicadas came out in large numbers, people think they swarm and cause a lot of damage, but they don't swarm. They don't eat crops, and if they damage the trees, it's due to their collective weight. And that brings us to the entry point of discussion with Dr. Simon. She regularly has to correct misconceptions about cicadas.
5: So insects that swarm are insects that form large groups and move as a group. Cicadas don't do that. They fly back and forth in treetops, but they don't fly as a group. They lay their eggs in the tree branches, and normally that's not a problem. But if there's not enough trees around, so people have removed a lot of the trees and there's just a few trees, Or if it's a very small tree, then too many females can lay eggs in a single branch, and the wind can cause those branches to break.
4: Well, there are other terms that you consider inaccurate, if not also unfairly disparaging. And now I'm wondering how they've come into use, words like invasion, menacing, a plague. What's your objection to these descriptions? Well, the cicadas
5: don't invade. They've been here the entire time. They're living underground. We're the ones that invaded. Humans came from Europe in the 1600s, and humans came even earlier than that. The uh, native North Americans came across the Bering Straits about anywhere from 10 to 15,000 years ago during the, the last glacial maximum. So they were here before we were, and they're, they're not menacing, they're completely harmless. They're very gentle insects.
4: They were here long before humans were. How how old are cicadas, evolutionarily speaking? And is their strategy of subterranean maturing, one that they've had since the beginning?
5: Yes. All the cicadas uh, develop underground and then emerge from the ground. There's two different families of cicadas. One family called the hairy cicadas, and they've been around for 200 million years and so all throughout the time of the dinosaurs and they mostly went extinct but there's still two survivors left uh, living in Australia. The um, modern singing cicadas they evolved about a hundred million years ago or anywhere between a hundred and sixty million years ago so the very end of the time of dinosaurs the Mesozoic.
4: You said that they go underground as part of their life cycle, and they've been doing this perhaps since um, their evolutionary start. Why do they do that? Why is that an adaptive behavior?
5: Well, living underground, um, they're feeding on tree roots, and so every available niche seems to be taken up eventually by something. And so the underground root-feeding niche was available when cicadas um, were evolving, and that's the
4: niche that they took one of the things that's so intriguing about them is the amount of time that they spend underground. And of course, this creates this suspense of their emergence, this periodicity. And they emerge in, if I understand this correctly, 13 or 17-year cycles. Is that right? And and what determines the length? Well,
5: not all cicadas emerge in 13 or 17-year cycles. Um, most cicadas whose life cycle is known, and that's only about 30, most cicadas develop over, say, uh, anywhere from a two to five year life cycle, but they're not synchronized, so some come out every year. And the 13 and 17 year periodical cicadas are not the only periodical cicadas. I've seen some journalists reporting that that magic cicada, the 13 and 17 year periodical cicadas are the only ones in the world, but that's not true. Um, We've discovered relatively recently in the literature that there is a four-year periodical cicada in northeast India, Meghalaya province, and there is an eight-year periodical cicada in Fiji.
4: I see. So it's quite varied. So what determines how long their life cycle is underground?
5: So it's genetically determined, and they must have some sort of internal molecular counter, Um, So they're keeping track of years going by. And you can see how it would be very easy for them to know when a year has gone by because they're feeding on roots. They can sense when the tree is dropping its leaves and when a new flush of leaves happens. So they can sense that and they'll know a year has gone by, but they have to keep track of that. And that's the big question, how do they keep track? And so we're planning to study that by sequencing their genomes.
4: So you think the answer to how they keep track will be found in their genome? Yes. Well, since we can't see underground, although you probably have come the closest to being able to see underground, could you give us a picture of what it's like for them down there? Are they, in the time that they're spending underground and and feeding on the tree roots, are they in a larval stage? Are they small insects? What do they look like? What's going on?
5: When they first
4: hatch, they're about
5: the size of a grain of rice. So the The nests are in the tree branches. Then the little um, nymph jumps out of the tree branch and falls to the ground. And it looks similar to the adult cicada, except it doesn't have any wings and it has digging front legs. Um, But otherwise, it's fairly cicada-like. And then once they get underground, they shed their skin five times and each time they grow bigger. So very similar to crabs and lobsters, you know, like a crustacean.
4: Well, then finally, Chris... How do you know when the cicadas are going to emerge, or when the 13-year or 17-year cycle cicadas are going to emerge?
5: Because we have very detailed records from the mid-1800s to present of exactly where they emerged, and they don't move, so they're coming out in exactly the same places now. Um, And so I was studying some cicadas on Long Island, where I did my PhD thesis um, at Stony Brook, and I was using records that came from entomologists who worked at the Staten Island Institute of Arts and Sciences, and he had recorded these in the early 1900s. And I went to exactly the same locations, and there they were.
4: Well, Chris Simon, thank you so much for joining us to talk about cicadas.
5: Oh, thanks for asking me. It was fun.
2: Chris Simon is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. And you can find links to our cicada mapping project on our website.
4: No
0: need to remember when cause everything old is new again.
2: We won't see cicada brood 10 again until their predicted reemergence in 2038, so mark your calendars.
4: Well, just when you thought this cicada story was finished, It's back for one more course, shall we say, about something fun we did while putting together this episode. I arranged for a surprise delivery to Seth, Sarah, and Gary from a shop on the East Coast. The package came in the mail, wrapped. Gary's first.
0: Got some sort of package here from Molly. Just
1: Open it up. Oh, chocolates. Awesome. Totally stoked on chocolates. And it's in a jar of some kind. I'm getting suspicious.
0: Chocolate-covered cicadas. What am I in for?
4: Now, Chris Simon had told us that the cicadas have a few natural predators.
5: You know, possums, dogs, cats, mice, raccoons, and turtles that'll eat them.
4: The 2021 Brood 10 season added one more to that list, humans.
5: Hi, I'm Sarah Dwyer, chef and chocolatier at Chuket Chocolate. I was shocked by how many people wanted to try chocolate-covered cicadas. I think the fact that they only come every 17 years, this big brood pen, I think really just caught people's interest. And we really just gathered them as they're coming up the tree. We basically pulled them off the trees. And then we put them in the freezer immediately. We talked to scientists. They said that was the most natural death. Then we took them from the freezer and we put them in quickly a pot of boiling water. We basically did it to clean the cicadas up a little bit. And then patted them off a little bit and put them in the air fryer. And the air fryer is a perfect way to do it because it really dries things out without burning them. And then once they've cooled off a bit, that's when we dip them in the chocolate.
4: <laughs> are you ready for brood 10, 17 years from now? Do you think you'll still be making chocolate-covered cicadas then? It's a date. I'll see you in 2038, I promise. <laughs> Seth didn't need convincing when his chocolate cicadas arrived. All right, so
2: here they are. It's just, well, I mean, so I'll just bite into this one. Hmm, some uh, odd flavors in there, but not bad, really not bad. And after all, eating insects is actually not so odd in many parts of the world, where doing so is, uh, you know, kind of a daily exercise. Not so much here in the United States, though, where it's, I don't know, there's a psychological impediment. So the others here prefer to support group for their arthropod dining experiment.
4: All right, well, we've all gathered to go where Seth has already gone, apparently. Are you all... Are you all in? Well, in is a strong word, Molly. My husband is in, I think, for this test.
0: Hi, Matt. Hello.
4: Hi, Matt. You are brave.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I am.
4: Well, I'm in the same camp as Sarah. I am deferring to my husband, Gordy. Gordy, thank you for taking over my role in the cicada eating.
0: Oh, this is my pleasure.
4: And Gary, you are not deferring to anyone, are you?
0: No, I'm ready to go.
4: So these are chocolate-covered cicadas.
0: Well, look at them. They're cute. Look how tiny they are. This is kind of grotesque. It actually looks like an entombed insect. (laughs) All right, here I go. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, that is definitely a crunchy insect. I heard the
4: crunch. Yeah,
1: it's definitely shaped like a bug, and I even think I see a little leg sticking out. So that's a little concerning. <laughs> oh <my God.
4: laughs> okay. Do you want to take it just a big old bite? Sure. Oh, it definitely is crunchy, for sure. I can hear it.
0: This has kind of got it's got a kind of a a bitter, very fibrous, kind of leggy taste. Okay, I'm up.
4: He put the whole thing in his mouth.
2: This could be just a box of chocolates you get on Valentine's or anything. It's
0: just, I mean, it was crunchy, but I didn't get any kind of animal or bug flavor out of it.
2: It's not bad.
4: It's not bad? Really? What does it taste like?
2: It tastes like
1: chocolate and kind of like the inner part of popcorn.
0: Yeah, it's a little grainy. I do have a little a little leg stuck between my teeth. Does anybody have a toothpick? I, I just it's just a little leg. You do
4: not.
2: Oh, there's a little bit of thorax stuck to the roof of my
4: mouth. Okay, I'm going to eat number three now. Well, Seth, there is a specific reason why I didn't eat the cicada.
2: Yes. What was it doing? I think that this is just going to be an excuse. It
4: is going to sound like that. It is an excuse. But do you remember when Chris Simon compared cicadas to crustaceans like crabs and lobsters? Yeah. They're all arthropods. That is, they are joint-limbed creatures and the sister group of insects. Well, during the cicada season, the FDA said that if you have a shellfish allergy, you shouldn't eat cicadas, and I do have an intolerance to shellfish, so I had to take a pass on eating the cicadas. <laughs> That's my excuse. It's it's a I guess it's a medical excuse. <laughs> well, it's because you have a shellfish gene. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that may be, that may be. Uh, now, I didn't see the cicadas when they came out other than those that were covered in in chocolate. Yeah, did, no, nor you,
2: did I. But I grew up as, you know, in Virginia, and uh, I certainly remember when I was a kid the first time that the cicadas, the 17-year uh, locusts, as they were mistakenly called, came out. And it was just great fun for us kids because, you know, we would construct little circuses for them to perform in. And, you know, when you're a kid, you have no problem dealing with the bugs.
4: Did you really do that? You constructed a little circus like a flea circus?
2: Yeah, but with, yeah, exactly, with sticks and so forth. I mean, it was hard to get the cicadas to perform. As it turns out, you know, they're, they're not good actors, if you will. Coming up, another long-running science experiment also finds life emerging from underground senescence. What happens when a 19th century botany experiment sees the light?
4: This episode is Cicadas and Zombie Seeds on Big Picture Science.
2: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X-N-A-S. Scientists don't often engage in secret missions, but one night in April, somewhere on the grounds of Michigan State University, a team of biologists embarked on
1: one we don't really want to attract a lot of attention.
4: Carrying flashlights, shovels, and a map dating to 1879, university plant biologist Frank Taluski and his team gingerly walked about looking for the precise spot to dig.
1: There is a certain level of, of secrecy. We want to keep the location and, and the dig as unknown as possible to the general populace. We don't want somebody going out there and digging up a souvenir. A long-running
2: science experiment was underway. Back in the day when Rutherford B. Hayes was president and the light bulb made its debut, the Beale seed experiment began. It was named for botanist William James Beale.
1: Professor Beale, uh, who came to Michigan State University in 1870, uh, was a professor of botany, and Professor Beale, as well as a lot of his colleagues, were very interested in addressing farmers' questions and trying to help them increase productivity on their land. And one of the questions that really needed to be answered that was, was out there was, how long do seeds remain viable? And so he designed this experiment to test how long will seeds remain viable within the soil.
4: Professor Beale buried 20 bottles, each containing 21 species of plants, with 50 seeds of each species. That's 1,050 seeds per bottle
1: the bottles are interesting little glass bottles they are kind of flat shaped flask bottles that you think of a whiskey flask i guess is the best way to describe it that i could think of they are not sealed when he buried them in the ground he buried them upside down so that they could remain contact with the soil for a gas exchange and also for moisture so that the sandy soil mix with the seeds would remain moist inside the bottles uh, when he buried them and he inverted them at a slight at, at a pretty steep angle so that the bottles would not fill up with water. If the bottles had filled with water, then the experiment would be ruined because the flooded conditions would not be favorable for long-term storage of seeds.
4: They were biological messages in a bottle put not into the sea, but into the ground. The intention was that one bottle would be unearthed every five years and the seeds it contained planted to see which would germinate. Since 1879, the intervals have lengthened to every 10 years and then to every 20 years, but the experiment has continued... There were five bottles remaining when Dr. Taluski and his team crept through the campus for an excavation and took the contents of the bottle into the lab to test.
2: Pardon my ignorance about germination, Frank, but what kept these seeds from germinating in the unstopped bottles? I mean, they had access to water and anything else that might be in the sandy soil in which they were buried. You'd think that if you dug these bottles up, you'd find all sorts of plants inside them.
1: Well, that's an excellent question, and I think that's one of the questions that have been subsequently answered over the past 150 years uh, that these experiments going on, not necessarily by this experiment specifically, but uh, one of the triggers is light. Uh, another trigger is the variability, the, the rapid day-night variability in temperature, uh, so that when you're in the soil you're buffered, uh, and so you don't experience that day-night change in temperature. And so these environmental cues, light, temperature, differential change, as well as moisture, but again, maybe more moisture than what's available down in the soil, will trigger germination, and that will keep the seeds from germinating if they're buried in, within the soil column. Okay. So they really are zombies, or, or maybe they're 17-year locust kind of thing. They're just waiting
2: for conditions to be right for them to start doing something. What was in the bottles? Obviously, you had seeds. Were they all seeds from the same plant?
1: No. He had uh, 21 different species of seeds, uh, different species of plants, uh, most of the plants that he planted, uh, he put in the bottle were kind of weedy species. He did have one tree species. He had a, a, a cedar tree species that was in the bottle, but we haven't seen cedars germinate at all. Uh, but anyway, yeah, they were mostly weeds. And I think, again, farmers were very interested because weeds were such a problem back back in the, uh, the 19th century and early 20th century. We didn't have herbicides to kill weeds and clean fields if you're going to go out there and— and weed your farm field, you're gonna probably end up doing it by hand with a hoe. So you had a long row to hoe. (laughs) The seeds certainly have this ability to remain dormant uh, in the soil. Who knows for how long? And it depends on, it's species dependent and we're certainly finding out that it's species dependent due to Professor Beale's uh, experiment. Okay, well, before
2: we get to the results then, tell me, what was the cadence of the experiment? I mean, he buries these things in 1879 and expects that, you know, after a given interval, that they're going to be dug up and some of them are going to be, you know, taken back to the lab, I assume. And, uh, you know, they, they would try and grow these things and see how many of them would still be viable. What, what was the cadence, according to Beale?
1: Well, Beale designed the experiment that every five years he would excavate a bottle and he would shake the contents of the bottle out, the seeds and the sand, and he'd spread them out into a tray. And he'd have, in those days, they used the greenhouse, they put them in the greenhouse, and then he'd record what germinated. And this went on for every five year until, years until he retired in 1910. Uh, he passed the experiment on to Professor Darlington, and Professor Darlington dutifully harvested a bottle, excavated a bottle every five years until uh, 1920. And then in 1920, having seen what germinated, he decided that Professor Darlington decided, why don't we move this up to every 10 years and make this experiment last even longer than Beale had intended.
2: All right. So uh, it, it turns out that there were, you know, it wasn't that the, the second time they dug them up, nothing happened anymore. They were they were still germinating, at least some fraction of them.
1: Right, and you can actually see it in the data that a fair number of different species germinated in the first few trials, the first few bottles that were excavated. Uh, Then they would slowly decline. By 1920, uh, it appeared that the same species were germinating, and this is what what led Professor Darlington to decide that maybe we could extend, stretch this out to every 10 years instead of every five years.
2: So, you went out, uh, you know, very recently, you exhumed, I don't know, one of the bottles, I assume...
1: There were five bottles in the soil this spring. We excavated one of those five bottles and shook out its entire contents in the lab, spread it out into a, a, a tray, put that in a growth chamber. We use growth chamber now instead of the greenhouse. And that bottle is actually uh, sitting on my col- in my s- colleague's office. Um, and uh, one of the things we're actually hoping to do is, is uh, possibly donate that to the Smithsonian Institute. My goodness. Okay, so, Frank,
2: what happened? You, <laughs> you took that bottle back... You uh, tried to get it to grow, to germinate. Did anything happen?
1: Well, yes. Uh, very very exciting. Uh, we never know what's going to happen because the you know, possibility is you reach the limit of your, your germination for the seeds. Uh, I wanted my uh, new colleagues who joined me uh, to experience the same excitement I had back in, uh, in 2000, seeing the seeds germinate for the first time after being buried in the ground for that period of time. And lo and behold, uh, seeds began to germinate and i remember that uh david lowry my colleague uh, who joined me on the experiment was the first one to go down to the growth chamber and and see the seed and it was a very exciting moment for him and i think for all of my colleagues right now we've have 14 seeds that have germinated they all appear to be the verbascum uh blatteria the moth mullen which uh, was very successful at germinating back in 2000. Uh, we just this week uh David and I uh, took the seed tray that was in the growth chamber and placed it into a refrigerator to give it a simulated winter chilling period for the next two months. And so that tray of soil is now going to be refrigerated uh, for that two-month period. We will take it back out of the refrigerator at the end of the two-month period, put it back in the growth chamber, and see if anything else will germinate.
2: Now, the things that did germinate, I mean, I, I you know, I don't know uh, my botany, but... Well, I don't know any botany, <laughs> now I think about it, not just mine. Uh, you know, what, what kind of plants are these? Because their Latin names don't mean too much to me.
1: Sure. mothbullen uh, verbascum blatteria, is a, actually a, a weedy species that was introduced from Europe. And in some, in some states, it it's even classified as an invasive species. We don't have much of a problem with it here in Michigan yet. The other one, Malva rotundifolia, is also a kind of a weedy species introduced from Europe and uh, it's it's a, it's kind of a plant you'll find mostly kind of in your garden or in your turf but uh, it, it's a kind of a small prostrate plant that grows you know close to the ground surface so
2: do you have an idea of what fraction of the seeds uh, from these two species actually continue to germinate after what it's almost 150 years
1: well if we had 14 uh, germinate so far of them of the verbascum uh, that's a 28% germination rate, because you have 50 seeds, so all you have to do is multiply the number by two to come up with a germination percent.
2: A 28%, that's pretty high. I mean, you you can keep doing... I mean, this is really a long-term experiment, right? I mean, uh, nobody alive today is going to see the end of uh, germination from these guys.
1: Well, and and you know, you're right. And one of the, the, the really fascinating things is that when you think about what was Beale's initial question, how long can seeds remain viable in the soil? and we can truly say as of 141 years after Beale started this experiment, we still don't know the answer to that question.
2: It's just amazing that, uh, you know, life is tough. You hear that all the time, but apparently it's, it's, it's really tough. What, what determines the viability and why did they develop it in the first place? What's the evolutionary benefit of being viable for 141 years or whatever?
1: Well, those are excellent questions. And to to answer your first question, We have, you know, researchers are studying this very question right now, and especially with the USDA. Uh, The USDA is very interested in, in preserving seeds. They have a seed bank in Fort Collins and other facilities here in the United States. Uh, there's the big seed vault up in, in Norway, in Slodberg, and there's, of course, the Millennium Seed Bank associated with Kew Botanical Gardens in, in London. Uh, these are researchers who are all very interested in, in how long can we keep seeds viable, and especially seeds of, of, of endangered species and seeds of crop plants, and, and, and some of the what we refer to as as uh, heirloom crop seeds that we can go back to for genetics for breeding. Not all seeds last for a long period of time so they're looking at other methods cryogenic methods to try to keep these seeds alive in the seed some species like verbascum the metabolism is very slow Uh, the dna and the rna are remaining intact and active but we have one of my colleagues margaret fleming she's going to be looking for some of the seeds that maybe didn't germinate uh, when we're done with this study and see if they are uh, still have active RNA and DNA inside of them, but for some reason the germination, the mechanism to facilitate and allow for complete germination has, has degraded, has broken. And, and so there. this is a very, very interesting question, uh, I think, that we don't have an answer to, but we're getting closer.
2: Finally, Frank, this whole experiment sounds like, uh, I, I don't know, building cathedrals in the Middle Ages, right? You, you might <laughs> lay the cornerstone and your great-grandkids might finish the cathedral or at least see the completion of the cathedral. I assume that uh, you're hoping this experiment continues on well into uh, maybe the next century or so. You know, is there that commitment from Michigan State or is everybody going to, you know, forget about this experiment after your paper is published?
1: I hope not. I don't think they will. Um, the thing that fascinates me is how much uh, the public has become interested in this study and the media does not let us forget, uh, even if we, if we wanted to, uh, which is a good thing. And so it's that, that human curiosity which drives science, it drives our technology, is out there even, even within the, the general populace. And we enjoy that. I think that's so wonderful that we will not forget this study. Well, Frank Taluski, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest in the study.
4: Frank Toluski is director of the W.J. Beale Botanical Garden at Michigan State University, and he's a professor in its Department of Plant Biology. You know, Seth, what is remarkable about this experiment and the cicada experiment is that both are taking samples over Long periods of time, many many decades, and the scientists each have to wait to collect data, you know, from anywhere from 17 to 20 years.
2: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the people in space science who have to wait for a spacecraft to get to Pluto, and it might take 10 years or whatever. That kind of thing, you know, long delayed satisfaction. But there were a couple of things that struck me about this experiment. To begin with, you know, it was really applied research because Michigan, well, you know, it was agricultural. And they were doing
4: something to try and get some insight into, you know, how farmers could deal with weeds. So for the farmers who were pulling up weeds, they would have some idea of when they might be able to stop pulling up the weeds. They, they pull up the same weeds year after year after year. At what point do the, do the weeds stop coming back?
2: Yeah, well, that, that's, that's interesting in itself. I mean, the fact that the seeds that germinated were all weeds suggests that, you know, maybe those farmers had something to do with the evolution of their ability to keep coming back because they kept pulling them up and the ones that could keep coming back you know got into the gene pool. I wonder if there's any truth to that innocent speculation.
4: Oh that's interesting. So they were actually unwittingly toughening up those seeds.
2: Well I mean it's just an idea but it, it did occur to me.
4: We have a garden at our home and there are many many weeds in the garden. I like the weeds. I mean, you don't like them if they're interfering with crops, but I think they're beautiful. Many of them are beautiful.
2: Well, see, it's another trick by nature to get you to leave them alone.
4: (laughs) Yeah, that's that tricky nature, making everything look so beautiful. (laughs) Right. Well, Dr. Taluski hopes that the Beal Seed Experiment will run to the year 2100, which is impressive. But even if you take the entire span of the seed experiment, it's still far shorter than this next experiment has run.
2: Coming up, it came from the deep and the cold.
4: The Siberian permafrost.
2: This episode is Cicadas and Zombie Seeds on Big Picture Science. Okay, on our tour of revived life forms, let's now go to the far north and the far east, to Siberia, to imagine it as it was 24,000 years ago. The last ice age was uh, in full swing, lowering temperatures around the world and ice sheets blanketed much of North America and Europe. Living in this desolate landscape was life at all scales, from microbes to mammoths, including a small multicellular organism called a rotifer, barely the size of a pencil dot. Rotifers have been known to withstand years of freezing, but now the species has broken its own record for time spent frozen while remaining viable.
4: Recently, a team of scientists from the Soil Cryology Laboratory at the Pushino Scientific Center for Biological Sciences in Russia took core samples of the Siberian permafrost, the permanently frozen ground common in northern climes. It was part of an ongoing sampling to find organisms buried in the frozen turf. Well, about 11 feet down in the permafrost that was 24,000 years old, they found a rotifer, but not any rotifer.
3: This is the ancient organism that is part of a lineage that seems to have gone extinct. If you look at the phylogenetics, you know, you see that it's related to the modern organisms, but it branches off in the way distant past. I am Rocco Mancinelli and I am a microbial ecologist and have done a lot of work in space microbiology and extreme environments of microbes.
4: They warmed up the contents and were in for a surprise when the rotifers started to move and divide. This discovery raises questions about where the outer limit might lie for suspended animation in complex animals.
2: So, Rocco, rotifers, I mean, I I suppose they're not restricted to Siberia. Are there any rotifers playing a role in my life?
3: You live among the rotifers. Rotifers are found in soil. They're found in water. They're found on trees. They're found in moss. You just can't see them, but they're out there, and they're part of your life every day. The name rotifer actually is derived from a Latin term that means wheel bearer. And this refers to the crown of cilia that they have around their mouth, which is right on the top of their head. And what happens is as they feed, these cilia seem to move. And as it moves, it moves in such a way that it looks like a wheel. And that's how they actually got their
2: name. So this was a frozen animal that they brought back. Yes,
3: frozen solid. What they did is they took this frozen piece of ice, basically. They didn't get the organism. They took the frozen piece of ice and they put the piece of ice in the nutrient medium. And then they waited and waited and And what happened, lo and behold, is that they saw these rotifers starting to metabolize and grow. By grow, I not only mean metabolize, I also mean that they started to divide and multiply. So once they saw that they could divide and multiply... They
2: knew that they had living organisms. So it was indistinguishable from a, from a rotifer that I could pick up off the ground today. Yes,
3: pretty much so, just by looking at it morphologically. Um, but what this group did is they, they did a lot of genetics on it. And that really was the concluding factors that uh, led them to say that it was not one of the really contemporary organisms. Now, this organism, if you want me to say it, I think this organism is old. Is it 24,000 years old? I don't know. We're dealing with a microscopic particle, in essence, that was buried only three and a half meters beneath the surface. So the questions are, did it move in the ice? And just because the ice is that old on a macro scale does not necessarily mean, definitively anyway, that the organism is that old. Did it didn't move through cracks that appear in the ice? The cracks don't have to be big. They only have to be 500 microns or so wide. And in fact, the authors themselves are not definitive in the paper. And this is an exact quote out of the paper. The isolated microbes were likely trapped in permafrost at the same time as the radiocarbon-dated organics. They don't really come out and say this is absolutely, completely definitive. But it is an old organism, or I should say the lineage is old.
2: The lineage is old. So this particular individual, I mean, it might only be a few thousand years old, or but... but. That, that, in a way, doesn't really matter to me because I'm astounded that a multicellular organism – I mean, this is not a single-celled critter. This is a multicellular organism that came back, right? Right. I mean, this is – we're not
3: talking about a bacterial spore or even a single bacterium or archaea. We're talking about a multicellular creature. Now, multicellular creatures, what makes them more difficult to bring back out of a frozen state is that they have to have some mechanism for protecting nearly all of those cells from being killed when they freeze so that it doesn't lyse the cell. I mean, there are other organisms that do that, but it is not common. So multicellular organisms withstanding freezing for such a long period of time is really a major feat and a major discovery.
2: When you say lice, of course, that's the term that means that the water in the cell freezes, expands, and that would burst all the cell walls and kill whatever those cell walls were in.
3: That's exactly right.
2: What would you call this? Is it a, did it just go dormant? I, I'm not sure what the definition of dormant is and how that differs from you know suspended animation or hibernation. I mean, is it doing any metabolism when it's uh, you know in this state waiting no. To...
3: So what appear it's not entirely clear exactly what happens physiologically in the organism, but what seems to happen is that they actually dehydrate themselves and then they can become frozen and then be revived so what's really unique here is not necessarily the fact that they can withstand freezing and withstand freezing for years and years but that this is an ancient lineage that has not been seen before and presumably several thousand years old
2: well Rocco, I can imagine that natural selection, that Darwin, might lead to an ability to come back after a bout with climate catastrophe like an ice ice age, at least if the catastrophe is frequent enough to favor this kind of selection. I mean, do you think that there are other, or are there other polar animals that have this ability? Uh, Yes. So there are a number of
3: organisms out there that can withstand freezing temperatures, ranging from members of the bacteria, the archaea, and uh, eukarya. So they're, they're pretty ubiquitous. There's a whole suite of mechanisms that, that are out there.
2: Well, can you give me some idea of what those mechanisms might be? I mean, does, does this rotifer have a secret, yeah, well, a secret ingredient, you know, a secret sauce for coming back to life?
3: well coming back to life now that's that's a that's a different thing so it seems that most organisms that when they are in this state of suspended animation whether or not it's through desiccation dehydration or frozen that once you give them some nutrients they will take them up and they will rehydrate and and come back to life so to speak they've never been dead but they they just start to metabolize so that's not new. There are the variety of mechanisms by which organisms can survive, some of them make what are called antifreezes or cryoprotectants. And these cryoprotectants actually range from different kinds of sugars to archaea use salts and sugars that regulate not only the uh, the ability to withstand freezing but the ability to withstand dehydration and they seem to all be related to some degree
2: well finally rocco you're well aware that when it comes to interstellar travel in science fiction they often invoke suspended animation to keep the crew alive during the tens of thousands of years that the trip is uh, sailing through space This rotifer is maybe a couple of hundred cells. Humans are, I don't even know, a couple of hundred trillion cells, whatever. Do you think that there's any way to extend the abilities of the rotifer to to me? Well, I don't think we have to go back
3: to the rotifer. Because really what you're talking about is you're talking about the underlying question, that is, could we put humans in a state of suspended animation by greatly slowing down or halting their metabolic activity? And so that uh, alleviates the problems associated with health concerns, spacecraft, you know, habitats, and supply allocation. So I don't think freezing is the answer to the variety of technical challenges. However, what is really currently being looked at and looked at seriously is the state of hibernation. And it's being studied, you know, to really look at how animals who hibernate actually hibernate and slow down their metabolism and survive and wake up again. One of the interesting things, in my opinion, that's a driving force is uh, microRNAs. MicroRNAs are short pieces of RNA that act as a molecular gene silencer. In other words, they help gene regulation. So by studying the microRNA strategy that these animals use, uh, we might be able to use this genetic on and off switch for understanding hibernation, have humans go into a state of hibernation.
2: i tell you, that is really intriguing. I I think I'm going to sleep on it. Rocco Mancinelli, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
3: Thank you, Seth. I appreciate it.
4: Rocco Mancinelli is a microbial ecologist with the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. Well, so the big picture here. We have been talking in the show about different organisms that are reclusive underground. Cicadas, seeds, and ancient multicellular organisms called rotifers. Now, they're all different. Cicadas are out of sight for as long as 17 years.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, that was interesting also. You know, okay, 17 years for whatever the reason actually is. But how do they count the years? <laughs> how do they do that? I mean, they don't have calendars. I don't know what they do.
4: Well, Chris Simon said that once they um, look at the genomes more closely after brood 10, uh, they may have some answers for that. She thinks it may actually be in the, in the genomes.
2: Yeah. It, it sounds like a difficult problem to
4: me. Well, the thing about the cicadas, though, <laughs> is that the cicadas are not dormant. Um, They're always busy doing things. The nymphs are feeding on the tree roots, whereas the seeds that we talked about are dormant. And they can maintain life for, well, we don't know how long. But in the Michigan experiment, uh, it's been going on for 150 years. Other organisms can be dormant too, like bacteria.
2: Yeah, I find that encouraging. That means, you know, the fact that seeds can last for years and still be viable is a good thing for, you know, exploration or even colonization of nearby planets.
4: Yeah, that's true. Um, Well, and then the other dormant organism that we talked about in the show is the rotifer. And in this case, it was a rotifer that was last seen during the Ice Age. Now, Rocco Mancinelli said there might be some dispute about that number 24,000 years ago, but still a very old rotifer.
2: And and something that you've noted, Molly, is that you know, okay, it isn't exactly the same sort of rotifers that we have today. So you could reintroduce these guys. It's like reintroducing the mammoths except on a rather smaller scale. I mean that, that just strikes me as there's, there's something about that because that means that certain organisms can go away for tens of thousands of years and come back and maybe find that the whole, you know, ecosystem has changed in the meantime –
4: that's an interesting point, and we didn't talk about this in the show, but certainly that issue of what happens when the permafrost melts raises the question of what organisms you're reintroducing to ecosystems.
2: Attention, sci-fi writers! This is a great idea for a, yeah, except, for it's, a not story. except well, it's not so sci-fi. Except it's not sci-fi. So far, it is. Well. Yes. Oh, something else, Ma. You know, we ate those chocolate-covered cicadas, and I just looked up. You know, the weight of all insects put together. It's hard to find out. Apparently not – you know, they don't always check in. But it's somewhere between 5 and 10 billion tons of insects are out there right now. That doesn't count as spiders. They're not insects. That means that for every human, there's about a ton of insects. And it certainly feels that way in the summer.
4: You know what this got me thinking though, Seth, is that humans are actually quite vulnerable. I mean – Sure, we have big brains and we're adaptive, we're nimble in many ways, but in some ways, this rotifer and even these seeds, I mean, they have some tricks we don't have, and in some ways, they have a hardiness that we don't have.
2: Yes, 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 yes it's true. I mean, that's the trade off. When you become big and complex, you're less adaptable. I mean, it's just a fact. Look at the bacteria. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about extremophiles and they can make anything a home, it seems.
4: We could not do the show without those who are always alert and above ground. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Reno Schulzky David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates extremophile organisms. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth. Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
4: Special thanks to some of our Patreon velociraptors, Beth in Washington, D.C., Noah and Katie Schwartz, and Clinton.
2: You too can join us on Patreon and hear your name in the credits, get access to exclusive bonus material, and more at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. With your support, will never go dormant.
4: Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. If you haven't already, we hope that you will subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Cicadas and Zombie Seeds.